This episode of the Gentleman Scofflaw podcast is brought to you by Patreon and the Gentleman Scofflaw merchandise page. Go to gentlemanscofflaw.com. In the menu, click the support or shop links to help support the show. You are listening to the Gentleman Scofflaw podcast. Listener beware. Rise and shine, the liquor store is open I ain't got time for moping I best be on my way Well, I still got time to save my reputation Time to go day drinking in this dirty little town Good afternoon, everybody Welcome to the Gentleman's Scofflaw Podcast The podcast for the rebel and a renaissance man. I'm your host, Jordan Crowder. Co-hosting with me, as usual, is the Don, Donovan Fowler. How you doing? Pretty good, man. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I should mention that later on in the show, we're going to have Emmy winner uh, Richard Jaynes on the show, and he's going to talk about some of the the changing of the guard happening in the Hollywood and entertainment industry. So that'll be a lot of fun. Old tinsel town. town. I read Uh, a couple of his articles. I felt very, very accomplished after after reading his articles. They're very well, uh, well researched and well written. They are. I say that much. Very much so. And uh, let me just start before we get into housekeeping. I'm going to thank one of our new patrons who joined at the. I'm trying to remember what the middle level is. I can't remember my own <laughs> Patreon. Oh, this is embarrassing. Oh, this is bad, Donovan. Uh-oh. This is bad. Uh, well, I'm going to thank <laughs> Samuel. <laughs> yeah. His name. Good that's, job, Samuel. That's all he did was put his name Samuel. Uh, otherwise, I would say his last name. Um, you think it's Samuel L. Jackson? <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson. Okay. It's possible. Does, the, does his avatar, is his avatar bald and slightly pissed off? <laughs> and wearing a, a, one of those kangaroo hats. <laughs> oh, yeah, Backwards. that was always Samuel Jackson's thing. That's <laughs> oh. like, uh, you know, that's like a, a page out of the bald guy's playbook is to just wear one of those hats backwards. <laughs> yeah. So he joined at the gentleman level. Uh, thank you for doing that. We appreciate it. If you want to support the show, get some extras. Get the videos uh, before the rest of uh, the world. Go to patreon.com slash gentscofflaw and uh, sign up for a little, yep. as little as a dollar an episode. Not a dollar an episode, a dollar a month. Come on. Come on, guys. For less than a <laughs> cup of coffee a month. It's you can give us enough to buy a cup of noodles a month. So exactly, think about that. It's think true. about that world. We can survive on cups of noodles, can we? But our teeth would I mean, fall I, out. I think. I, <laughs> let's just put it this way: you can survive on cups of noodles, but I don't think um, I, you may not live very long. It's possible. I think I read you know? somewhere that somebody only ate them, only ate ramen, and then their teeth fell out. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah, yeah fake that news. stuff, it, it, it ain't natural. No, I, I honestly, you, you just know that that stuff, it's, it's, it ain't healthy for you. <laughs> it ain't healthy for you. It ain't good for you. Um, That's not good for you. Let's start off with a little bit of housekeeping here, Donovan. Cool. I've got, as uh, we talked about with uh, our good friend Zach a couple episodes ago, I helped <laughs> him move out the other day. He told me, hey, there's lots of booze in the apartment. Take whatever you want. 
Nice. So I got some uh, Johnny Walker Black. I've never Very had cool. any form of Johnny Walker whatsoever, but I think the black really? is like the nicest one, right? Uh, no. No? Am the I wrong? Blue is the, the blue is the nicest one. Blue? <laughs> black is like, black. yeah, blue, la- bl- dude, blue label. I've never had it, but blue label is expensive. Okay. Um, black label is like. Uh, red is it, the worst though, right? Well, not the worst, but the lowest. Yeah, red red is like the cheapest stuff. That's that's Donovan scotch right there. <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's red. Not. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, black, I, I did a whole thing on it, but. Yeah, is that double black or just black? Just black. It's oh, actually okay. very good. Um, I'm I'm drinking out of my Glen Carn glass here that I'm holding up to the camera. If you guys want to watch what, on the video what, podcast, what a snob! What See a what the snob. color's like. Jeez, Louise. Oh, it's got some nice legs on there. Is yeah. that what they say? <laughs> um, isn't that nice what they say? Um, I, I don't. Oh, I'm not one of those people. I think uh, Gerald Morgan, who's been on before, talk about wine. I think that's was one of the things people call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably and, some of the terminology. And I don't think it what, matters. He said. I think with I think with whiskey, it's the nose and the the nose and the palate. Yeah. Right. The yeah. palate. Mouthfeel. Mouthfeel. Is that a beer yeah, thing? Mouthfeel. <laughs> just call it uh, that. How, well, wait. What? What is the? What was it taste like it's to you? It's good. Like, it's um it very peaty, or what's the? What's you know the deal? What? It smells Smoky. more peaty than it tastes, and this is the first time I've ever had anything peaty that almost smells. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but it almost smells like moldy in a way. If that makes sense. Like an earthy, not moldy, <laughs> like, like an earthy, cheese. an earthy kind of smell. But it is smooth. It's not. It's not. I didn't expect it to be as smooth as it is. Man. Yeah, yeah, that that kind of makes sense. Johnny Walker, I feel like like I said, like I I remember I remember I was uh you you were actually you were part of this thing. We shot that music video with Mike Baylog, big oh, Mike yeah. couple. Shout out to Mike Baylog. Uh and uh they had um they had a bunch of scotch bottles and stuff, but they needed to empty them out and fill them with like iced tea. I don't know if that's like a regulation or something. Oh, geez. What, a, what a shame. Actually. Yeah. Well, no, but what, so what they did was that they emptied them out into like regular, like Perrier bottles and stuff. So they like, oh. they basically filled these water bottles up with scotch and, uh, Guess who got to take him home? It's nice. <laughs> you just yeah, had a bunch of was, Perrier with nice scotch. I know. It felt so cheap. It was <laughs> it was Valentine's Day, and my roommates were all sitting around watching like, uh, gosh, what were we watching? Like The Shining or something. And uh, I was drinking scotch out of a Perrier bottle. <laughs> it was it was a very unique experience. It'd be a unique way to steal uh, to sneak into a movie theater. Um, yeah. I'm also smoking. Uh, figured it would pair nice with this. This is yeah. um, some of the last of R.I.P. Frogmorton Cellar uh, mm. tobacco, which is an English Balkan blend, I think they call it. Um, has a little whiskey stave in there. Um, I've been smoking it in my little uh, my little uh, Barracini pocket pipe as I take Barachini. little bits of it until it's gone. Um, so that's why I've been <laughs> I've been been slowly working it th- through it the last two years. That's uh well, we salute you. We salute you, uh, McClellan. What's what's the what's the name of the McClellan's Frog Morton? Okay, and it has for those of you who can't see, it has a frog on the label. Mm-hmm. He seems to be like a very Mr. happy. Toad. Frog. 
It's actually yeah, paired Mr. well. Toad. It's a good Scotch uh, pairing blend. If you yeah, guys, well, if, if it's English, if I feel like if it's English, then you know it's yeah. better. If you guys know of anything that's a similar to Frog Morton, um, let us know because uh, leave us a comment here and let us know what that is because it's been hard for me to find a match and it'll never be a true match. Um, I feel like plum pudding for me seems kind of similar, which I've talked about on the show. Sounds um, British enough. Yeah. And then there's another blend that I love of theirs called Holiday Spirit, which is an aromatic blend that actually tastes really good. It almost tastes like you're smoking cookies. And that's not always the case for aromatics where they really <laughs> taste like their flavor. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I'm all out of that. So if you know where I can yeah, get something man. similar. I am kicking myself. I did not bring my pipe oh, no. out with me. But, but what are you drinking there? Is there? A, what am I drinking? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Oh, um, sorry. I thought that's what you're going into. I didn't mean that. You, <laughs> you, you misinterpreted my segue, man. <laughs> No, uh, I was just going to say I was I was actually like legitimately uh, irritated with myself that I didn't bring my pipe because it's just like this is the perfect time to sort of just, you know, sit down with a pipe. But I have yeah. been smoking cigars yeah. on occasion. I, I went and got an Arturo Fuente. Um, I don't know. What was it called? Like Especial or something like that. And it's it's super cheap. And it's just like, you know, it was OK. It was yeah. an OK. So let's just say that it was not the worst cigar I've ever had. But it definitely wasn't the best. Here's I've the got thing a punch with, in my back in my oh, rock those are that good. I'm going to open up this uh, this weekend. Hmm. But yeah, that's mostly what I've been smoking lately. But I should really just go out and buy a meerschaum, like a Missouri meerschaum, and and just some tobacco from the local. Uh, well, you're not even that far. Store. Are you from the actual the plant? Probably you can probably, or the factory. You could probably Maybe. drive there in a couple hours. Yeah, I don't know how. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I come, I come seeking a meerschaum. I just like stumble into the factory and they're like, get out. We don't want you here. We're not open. Um, no, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I could definitely, you know, there's some tobaccoists around that I could, yeah. I could probably. If not, you can always order from our good friend, Scott at Aristocob.com. Little plug for him. True. Uh, what are you, what yeah, are you drinking a, there, Donovan? You've been uh, really getting so, into bourbons lately. So yeah, dude, I mean, you know, it's funny because it's like, it's, it's like you were talking scotch and I, I last summer around this time of year, I started to get into scotch, uh, Mainly just because I realized I had never really given whiskey much of a thought when I was drinking it. I mean, even when we were drinking it on the podcast, I was like, I, I don't know, like it's whiskey. Yeah, you know? gets like, it done. Yeah, mix it with some Dr Pepper and call it a day. <laughs> no, I mean that used to be my attitude with whiskey, and uh, and then I started to do a deep dive on Scotch, and that was fun. And then uh, I thought Scotch was my drink, and then I moved into bourbon, and. Uh, yeah, man, it's been great. I mean, basically, uh, you know, as we've talked about before, I've gone through the Trader Joe's bourbons and then Evan Williams, which Evan Williams white label is sort of my game these days. But I uh, I was able to pick up a bottle of Old Granddad, which I had heard. I don't remember the name of the reviewer. He's like an old Scottish guy. But uh, I was able to uh, hear his review of it a like a month or so ago. And uh, I was always curious of it. And it's a, uh, it's a hundred proof bonded, which means a hundred proof and, uh, or rather is a hundred proof. Yeah. A hundred proof, 50%. And, um, it's been interesting. It's sort of like, I, well, I'm going to pour, I'm going to pour a glass and I'm going to kind of do a little, you know, review, but let's, let's just hear that cork. Oh, Oh, 
Oh yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's like, it's an old label. I mean, it's been, it's been around for, uh, for a while, but it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty good. I, I, I like it. I don't know if I'd say, well, I'll, I'll keep the verdict off until yeah. a little bit later. Or, Give a little taste, but Give a little sniff. Yeah. Dude, my nose yeah, is so bad. It. Like I can, <laughs> I can hear stuff from like a mile away, but my nose is like, if there's natural gas in this house, we're, we're not making it out. Colorblind um, with a highly acute sense. Honestly, of the hearing. nose smells a little bit. This is just going to come off, and this is not to insult old granddad, but it comes off a little cough syrupy. Cough I don't syrupy? Know. Yeah. And sometimes I like cough syrup, though. Sucking on old granddad's cough syrup? Yeah, <laughs> old granddad's cough syrup. I don't know. Maybe that's where it comes from. All pumpkin right. pie haircut it freak. Comment down below if you know that reference. Oh, man. So good. Okay, so here's the thing. I don't know. I mean, it's not as... um, It is almost a little sweet. Like, it's a weird... I don't know. I can't can't shake the sort of cherry cough syrup taste that I'm getting from this. I don't know, but uh, I'm as you can tell, I'm not a professional. Uh, but they call him Smallier, <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just go off what I'm feeling here. Is this but, your first uh, your honestly, first crack at it? No, 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 no. I've been drinking. I, I've been I've been taking like little cracks of this. Actually, my dad and I uh, uh, broke into it last night because uh, he uh, he can't remember where he hid uh, the bottle of Four Roses. That we bought no. from the liquor store. So I was like, well, I've got the old granddad. Sounds and, like um, a post liquor store trip. Uh, it was. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember where we, uh, <laughs> where we stowed that other bottle. No, but uh, anyways, uh, long story short, he took a drink of this and he was just like, it was that sort of like uh, in Great Escape where uh, they pass the moonshine that they're making around the potato moonshine. Yeah. And they each take a drink and one of them's like, oh, wow. You know, it's just like this, like afterburn, which I love. That's what I love about it. This yeah. and um, Evan Williams White Label. I'm big on the uh, the afterburn. Like it's that. Usually, people of, use the term afterburn meaning something else, but you enjoy well, like, the afterburn. I do. I enjoy the after. I'm thinking. I'm thinking Top Gun, man. I'm thinking Jets. Come on. You're not your thinking of. I don't know. I don't know where your mind's going. The with next that. morning after you've had Buffalo Wild Wings. That's what mm. I call the afterburn. Well, you and I are living on. I don't go to Buffalo Wild Wings. You and I are living <laughs> on two different planets. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but no, this has uh, this has a nice like. It's that. It's that like alcohol that kind of stays in your throat. Yeah, and if you if you play it right, if you sip like it's it's good for sipping because you sip it and then you take a deep breath after you sip it. Yeah, and it's like you can feel it just sort of go into your head. It's really cool. It's like a really cool feeling, and I, I feel like I've had that with Buffalo Trace. It almost sounds like Evan wasabi, like the way you're describing it. Yeah, yeah, it's really weird. It is like that. It's like yeah. it's like it irritates it irritates your uh, or or horseradish. Yeah, horseradish. Um, it doesn't really get into the navel cavity, so it's not quite that. But like, but it is that sort of weird thing. So, 
I'm a big fan of that. And once you go there, it's sort of hard to come back, but I'll say, I'll say this for the price. It's not bad. It's like 20 bucks a bottle, or at least that's what I got it for here in Kansas. I feel like I wouldn't put it above Evan Williams white label. I, I think that's still my favorite bonded bourbon. Okay. Um, but it's pretty good. It's it's yeah. I'll I'll go for it. You know, if it's, you, if it's a if it's around, I'll drink it. What do you give it on the scale? Uh, let's see. Well, if Evan Williams White Label is like a okay, so Eagle Rare on my scale right now, and I'm like like we've said. Full disclaimer, like full disclosure, I'm not a whiskey sommelier. Like I said, I used to just mix it with Dr. Pepper and it was fine. But uh, as I've been getting into it, you know, I've, I've, I've ventured out a little bit. Eagle Rare, I'd say, was like a, a 10 for me. Like that was my favorite. I love that whiskey, um, which also has a high rye content like uh, old granddad does. But Eagle Rare is great. Buffalo Trace probably is like a eight. You know, um, I'd say Evan Williams is I would say Evan Williams white labels. Actually, if it's not a seven point five, it's an eight. Uh, so I put old granddad at probably a seven. OK. Yeah. All right. Well, you heard it from the Don here. It's a seven yeah. on one to ten. Uh, go ahead and uh, check it out. Let us know what you think of it. If you've had it before, leave a little, little note in the comments here. Uh, tell us what, give us your review of it. I mean, yeah. Hey, we want to, we want to learn from you too. Let us know what give we us, should try out. Uh, give us your whiskey stories. If you're on Instagram, tag some whiskey labels, say, Hey, you, we want uh, Jen Scoffall to try these out. You know, we could, maybe they'll send us something to try out on the show. Maybe become a sponsor. Maybe. That could be a thing. <laughs> anyway, speaking of whiskey um, and me cleaning out somebody's apartment where there was a lot of, um, this one was completely unopened, which I was surprised. But there nice. were a lot of them that were, you know, half open. Sure. Uh, I don't know how long they had been there. Um, you sent me this article this week about oh, yeah. the shelf yep. life of alcohol, which we could talk about. Um, what did What did we find here? Yeah, it's interesting. It's like, so actually this all stemmed from, uh, my sister was bringing up the fact that with all this, uh, with the Corona, um, I don't know what accent I did right there. Yeah. Um, with, uh, Corona hitting the, uh, the streets, it's, um, you know, you had a lot of restaurants that had surplus of alcohol, specifically beer, you know, like kegs and stuff. Because if you think about it, it happened right before St. Patrick's day. Yeah. So, uh, a lot of these restaurants, I mean, they make their money with alcohol anymore. Anyway, I'm, I'm not an economist. I, I don't know exactly (laughs) how this all works, but they had a surplus doctor. Yeah. I'm not a doctor, not an economist, not a whiskey sommelier. I'm just a podcaster. I'm just a humble podcaster. Okay. (laughs) No, but, um, they so they were with their food uh, curbside pickup. They had the alcohol just out on the sidewalk, like just boxes and of beer and kegs really? and stuff. And it was because it was all going to go bad, so they needed to. They wanted to sell it off and and get rid of it. Um, I hope they were selling at a discount. I did not encounter any of these uh, any of these kegs out on the sidewalk, but I probably would have bought one. A lot of people one. were making cocktails to go too. A lot of these businesses. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that, which is 
Interesting. I say I say go for it, but I also say don't drink and drive. So, well, in, you know, in Texas, they have the in Longview. I forget what the name of the business is. Um, this is such a Texas thing. There mm. is a drive through like I think you can get drive through margaritas. But the way that they get around the liquor thing is that they hand it to you in the car. But I think that there's a top on the straw like they leave the the. <laughs> The, you know, the paper on the straw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's considered a closed container. And uh, you're not supposed to drink and drive, uh, but you can take it home and you've got your margarita. That's um, But name. yeah, I'm sure many people uh, take it as Dude, a roadie on their way, way home I, from work. Speaking, speaking of closed containers, just a quick segue from this conversation. I recently read up on a football player. I don't remember his name. He got busted for like several, you know, uh, whatever you call it, violations uh, for driving, you know, with various substances. And one of them was driving with a uh, container with a broken seal. Oh, wow. And uh, I never thought of that. Like thinking back now, how many times I was driving in California with like a whiskey bottle that had maybe had a few, you know, a few shots taken out of it earlier earlier in the week or whatever, but I wasn't like, like we drove to San Diego. I want to say, although yeah. that Tullamore do may have been, may have been, I, I think it was fresh, but, but is anyways, that the same law in California though? I don't know. I know Texas, you can't bad. have an open container. I think it's, I think it, I think it is. It, it, oh, California. Are you kidding me, man? I mean, California, they'll like crucify you. But for, I feel like, like their liquor the laws sidewalk. are much, you, uh, much looser here. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, you might be right. But either yeah. way, I, I, I talked to my dad about it. my dad's a lawyer and I was like, I was like, is it like, can you really get nailed for driving with like, if I, if I was going over a friend's house and I threw like a half, a half empty bottle of Evan Williams in the back, like what, like, what would you get for that? And he was like, yeah, it can be really bad. Oh, okay. Um, so just a reminder to all you scoff laws out there, you know, be smart. Don't scoff too many laws. Yeah, put him in the trunk. Don't don't give him don't yeah. give him an excuse to to, to uh, you know. What if you have a hatchback? That's the issue, right? I don't know. That's what I've well, got. Then you then you then you hide it in the in the uh, the spare tire wheel well. <laughs> no, but uh, like a like a real bootlegger. Yeah. No, but um, but anyways, uh, back on track. The uh, that's crazy about the the drive-through margaritas. But I, I love, I mean, I do like the fact that these, that these restaurants have been able to like give like six packs away with their, you know, stuff. I mean, to me, that's just fun. Like, it's yeah. like, yeah, okay. I'll pick up a p- pizza and get some like beer with it. That's awesome. Yeah. I think um, beer has a shorter shelf life than whiskey though. Right. Cause of does. the carbonation so, and the yeast and all that stuff. Yeah, it does. I mean, honestly, I, I, I and like Jordan was saying, you guys can comment, and send us your stories on, you know, uh, maybe some bad skunk beer that you've had or some beer experiences when it's been expired. But ultimately beer, the, the, the word on the street is the beer goes bad after three months. Um, I want, I remember this is funny because recently we were cleaning out the fridge at my place and my roommate had a bottle of Stella Artois and I was like, I looked at the label and it was about a year past or something like that. Yeah. And I, I said to him, I was like, you want this? And he was like, he was like, no, like he looked at me like I was crazy. And I was just like, okay, well, I'm not going to let it go to waste. So like I cracked it open. It was fine. I yeah. mean, it really not like it, it didn't. So well, I, I think, think it's if kind you of, keep it chilled and then out of light, then it's probably maybe. will last longer. But I think like sometimes people will like, 
store like excess beer from a party like out on a patio in the yeah, sunlight before yeah. they bring it in to put in the fridge when they want it and then that's when yeah. that that could accelerate the process <laughs> <laughs> the best was like i remember going over to friends houses in the um summer and uh seeing you know like they had had a party a summer party or something like maybe a couple weeks before or whatever yeah and uh there was like a uh, ice bucket, like a big old, like drink, um, tub that had, it had ice in it with like a bunch of beer and stuff. And now it was just all melted. And it was just like, the beer was just floating in this, like under their deck or whatever. It was just the laziest thing. But, um, but yeah, man, I mean, it sounds like, I don't know, three months to me sounds a little, uh, steep like you said but i think if you chill it and everything you're good whiskey vodka tequila rum all lose their flavor if you open it uh about six to eight months after opening really which, yeah i've I mean, had that's a lot of bottles better. older than that around yeah i mean i feel like uh, honestly like i said i'm not a sommelier so if i drink something and i'm like yeah it tastes good it's like i might maybe get a sense of like the flavor is gone, but I'm not going to be like, you know, super on point with it. I've also read that it has to do with how much was left in the bottle. So if you're storing a full bottle, there's less place uh, for air to cause uh, oxidation. Yeah, exactly. If it's, that's why I try to, you know, once I open a bottle, I try to drink it as fast as possible. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, you got to make sure that oxidation doesn't happen. Open it and put it in the smaller Perrier bottles. Yeah. (laughs) Officer, please. I mean, that, that, that bottle of old granddad, it was wasting away and I had to drink it before I got the bar. Um, No, but uh, so then there's, uh, other than that, there's um, wine, which can last up to 10 years. Uh, but once you open it, I don't know, man, my roommates have opened bottles of wine and I've just seen them sitting there uncorked for days yeah. and they will still drink them. And I'm like, yeah, I just seems... to drink it within a day, I think. Or you could, yeah. I think you, you could cork it and put it in the fridge for like two, three days, but that's what they say. Yeah. That, that, that's the, uh, but uh, bottom line is, is that the higher sugar content, the faster it'll, um, go sour or whatever. Yeah. That makes sense. So. But whiskey doesn't really, like, it doesn't go, like, because beer will clearly turn, like, like it's gone bad, Mm -hmm. where I feel like whiskey just can lose its flavor, but it doesn't ever, like, there's no, like, process, there's nothing that could grow in it, like mold or anything. It's such high alcohol content. No. So, honestly, I think it all depends on the alcohol. I mean, aged whiskey. I mean, there is like something about like, oh, this is an aged whiskey or whatever. This is like a 10-year-old, 12-year-old scotch. Um, So to me, it's like, I don't know. I mean, it it depends on the alcohol. Plus, I I, I have heard like even like red and white wine. Yeah. Like white wine does not age. Like you want to drink that relatively within the season that you buy it. Whereas – Red wine you can age for a while. Although the problem with the wine is, is my dad, like my dad has a pretty good wine cellar. Your, your dad has a wine problem? That's what it sounded like I was gonna say. <laughs> yeah, my dad's a real wino. You know, he just stumbles around Leewood, Kansas. Just, he's losing you know, whiskey bottles. Hey, he's- I don't usually do this, but could you buy me a pizza? Um, <laughs> dad, come on, let's go. Uh but no, but um uh he uh he'll open up wine bottles that are, you know, like 20 years old and then the cork just instantly dissolves. Oh yeah. Freaking 
cheesecloth thing. There's got to be an easier way. I mean, there's got to be some device that they've figured out where it'll, well, you know, you can just throw it on the wine bottle and filter it. But our it friend all the time. Gerald, who's been on the show before, talk about oh, wine. Yeah. He's, I actually shot some videos for him years ago where he showed me this contraption that's almost like a syringe that goes in through the cork into the bottle and extracts the wine. And then you could pull it out and it completely seals as if it was never opened. Like it's, so it's always stays like a brand new bottle. No air gets into it. So I feel like with something really old, maybe something like that would still work for like a crappy cork or something. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's not a bad idea. Yeah. Well, we'll ask him in the, in the, in the future. Um, you know what we need to do is let's take a quick little break because, uh, joining us really shortly here is Richard James men or women. This one's for you. Let me take a second to talk to you about GORUCK. Now, you've heard us on this show talk about their awesome endurance events, which are you know great for fitness and team building. But of course, they are known for their amazing gear. Some of the best gear in the world, actually. I myself own a GR1 rucksack for all my rucking and training. I also have one of their uh, 30-pound ruck plates, which is so convenient because I could just drop it in the laptop compartment on my bag, and I have a weighted ruck. It's super cool. But one of my all time favorite things that they offer are their sandbags. Now, if you've never trained with a sandbag, you're in for a treat. I love that you can keep it in the trunk of your car and take it to the park and you have a gym anywhere. Ever try doing sandbag man makers with 60 pounds? I mean, you get a fun and very hard training session in really quickly. Um, It's a big bag of suck in all the right ways. Now, Even if you're not in the rucking, they have tons of sleek apparel for the outdoors in addition to their gear uh, that is tough as nails and built to military standards. Also, their apparel and gear offer their scars a lifetime warranty, so you buy the item once and that's it. You're set for life. But you know what the greatest thing is about GORUCK? All of it is made in the good old USA and by special forces veterans, mind you. It doesn't get more badass than that. That's right. America. To check out GORUCK gear, go to gentlemanscofflaw.com slash GORUCK, and anything you buy through that link helps support the show. That's gentlemanscofflaw.com slash GORUCK. Whether it's for your fitness regimen, your, you know, your outdoor lifestyle, or just, you know, a great bag for everyday carry, um, you're going to want to check them out. GORUCK, built in the USA. All right, Donovan, I'm excited to have this guest. Um friend of mine sent me one of his articles this week, which was really interesting, but he is an uh, Emmy award-winning personal brand expert. And he also uh, has a, a podcast called Finding Passion and Purpose. Uh, Richard Jaynes, thank you so much for joining us. Hey guys, it's good to be here. <laughs> yeah, this is fun. Um, you're over in Oklahoma right now, which we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, later on. But uh, for our listeners that don't know you, just give us a little bit about your background and kind of where you came from and, 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 and what you do. Yeah, well, we've got a bit of time because we're in quarantine. So I'll give you a bit more detail. <laughs> yeah. How about that? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so- I started off as, a, as a, a precocious child actor back in the UK if my accent didn't give it away, right? Um, and and it was at a time, so this was sort of 94, so it was pre-YouTube. And so one of the things that brands would do in America is they would test out their product that they didn't feel very confident in on Eastern Europe. So think things <laughs> wow. like... 
Um, I did a commercial for Starburst, the drink. And think about <laughs> melted down Starburst and just drinking that. It was the most disgusting thing oh, in the world. So oh, what man. they do is they take these English actors, often kids with stuff like that, and they'd fly them out to uh, Budapest. And we'd have to do these commercials in three, four different languages. And it was great because the translators were always these really hot, uh, gorgeous uh, Eastern European women who would just sort of be there sort of trying to teach you how to say these words and getting up close to your mouth and moving your mouth. And um, <laughs> So I had a really fun childhood. Um, so I go and do that. And then in the summers, I shot a series with children's bbc so i was based at ealing film studios called the demon headmaster so demon school principal um and then got into i I sort of realized very quickly that all the power was behind the camera and what the hell am i doing as an actor i need (laughs) to get a bit of that power um so i went back to film school worked as terry gilliam and tar sam's assistant and then um made a a uh, started doing some plays because i'd never done play theater work as a as an actor um and i got into a situation where we had a play that was going to transfer to the west end and it was 2000 and i want to say 2001 so it was just as we were going to war with afghanistan and um it was it was an anti-war play wow. and the theater owners were these dastardly americans <laughs> <laughs> over, over a dinner with the investor, we were told that they decided that not to put on an anti-war play in their theater in the, in the West End because they were concerned about sentiment of anti-war as we were going to war. Yeah. Um, and the owner, the, the investor said, uh, you can't do this. I'm putting in half a million pounds into this theater production. And if I don't put it in and spend it, then it's all going to go to the government because it's wrapped up in this, what's called an enterprise, um, what was it called? EIS, Enterprise Investment Scheme. And in England, by the way, a scheme is not a bad thing. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> the approve of it. Okay. Um, so um, I, I said to her, I said, well, um, okay, uh, wh- what, what else can you spend this money on if you have to spend this money? Let me work out a way of spending it for you. Would it work for a film? And she said, yes, it would. Do you have, an, do you have, a, do you have a project? And I said, I had the best project in the world. It's phenomenal. And she said, what is it? Pitch it to me. I said, listen, we've had a bit to drink. So <laughs> let's, not, let's not do this right now. Let, let's meet up tomorrow. We can have a good cup of tea and I can tell you what this, what this actually is. So I ran home and I got on the internet and I found a script. And that day, that, that, and I contacted the writer and said, look, here's the crazy thing. I might have half a million pounds um, to shoot this movie, which means you're not getting hardly any money whatsoever. But do you want to see your movie made? He said, yes. And uh, we ran, um, I ran back the next day to her, told her the story. She said, that's great. That's brilliant. Let's do it. Oh, by the way, because you were going to go into production with the theater show, you have to have spent all the money on the production within the next 10 weeks. Oh, God. <laughs> we can do it. Don't worry. So we went off and shot the movie. And that was my first feature film. I brought Smart Car in to sponsor it. You know, the little two-seater cars? Yeah. So they'd yeah. never been involved in a movie the way that sort of the mini had been made with the Italian job. And yeah. I had this yeah. big thing that we'd make this half a million dollars, half a million pound movie and it would be like the italian job it would be that big needless <laughs> to say it's called fakers or the art of the heist in america when lionsgate renamed it and no one has heard of it so i didn't do as well as <laughs> the italian job uh, but it got me into the film world uh, that then got me into um i got a phone call to go to hollywood um and that in of itself was a nuts story i was at the cast and crew screening in leicester square which is the big place where all the screenings happen think chinese man in hollywood right okay, yeah, so we'd right. rented it out at like 
four o'clock in the morning because that's the only time I could afford to rent the theater out just so that we could all watch it on a big screen. Um, and someone came up to me and said, hey, um, I, I'm from, I live in Hollywood now and um, I know some people out there and have you ever thought about coming to Hollywood? And I was 22 at the time. And I said, yes, what are you doing in Hollywood? And she said, um, I'm a teacher. And suddenly, you know, I felt a bit deflated. Oh, I had this dream that she was going to be a big Hollywood executive and she was going to whisk me off and I'd have this amazing life ahead of me. Um, and I said, well, look, I'd love to come out. I'm dead broke because I've just made this movie. I didn't pay myself on it. And she phoned me two days later and she said, listen, I'm back in Hollywood and I've spoken to some friends and they want to see your movie. Um, can you come out and show it to them? I said, well, yeah. I mean, I was thinking about the end of the year, trying to save up some money. She said, no, no, no. These people, if they say you want to see, they want to see your movie, you have to be out here within a couple of days. I said, well, who are they? So she told me these names and I had no idea who they were because I was just, had no idea about Hollywood at all. Yeah. Um, ended up um, flying out here, uh, going to Terry Semmel's house. Uh, at the time, Terry Semmel had just been the, he had been the CEO and president of Warner Brothers. He just left to become the CEO of Yahoo. Uh, I then, we, we watched the movie at his house in his private screening room. So in those days, we were still shooting on film. So I walk into his house with these film canisters because <laughs> someone said that he's got a movie theater in his basement. Yeah. And I go in and, and I don't see any film projection glass at oh, the back. No. And I panic. I'm at the head of Warner Brothers' house about to show the movie to his family. And all I've got is these bloody film cans. How stupid am I? <laughs> and someone said, oh, no, no, watch this. Boop, 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 boop. And all the paintings started to move oh, to reveal the screening room behind them. <laughs> um, it, was, it was one of those moments where for like three weeks, I was just pinch me, pinch me, pinch me. This is the dream. Um, anyway, needless to say, I, I ended up... Um, uh, meeting uh, a young lady who was trying to get me to work on a film and we fell in love. And I said, right, Hollywood's going to be my home because she was, had a deal at Warner brothers at the time, um, got into development on a number of different movies. But in the last writer's strike, um, a group of friends and I hatched a plan for what we would call eventually filmmakers ranch. Um, but also this idea that, um, we all knew so much about how to make movies, but the key to any power of making movies is distribution yeah. and distribution yeah. at that time was controlled by the studios. But this new thing called social media was coming up, um, that actually could change all of that. So I then built an agency that looked after over a hundred celebrities, everyone from Larry King to young Disney stars building up their social media so that we could understand how to distribute uh, IP, whether that is a movie or a TV show, or whether that is simply selling perfume yeah. Um, yeah. through social media. Um, and I still have that company in LA, but uh, as, as, as you rightly pointed out earlier on, I'm now in Oklahoma City <laughs> where we've got a great team in LA, great team in Dallas, but I just needed a bit of a slower pace of life um, yeah. and where I could really learn to authentically use the word y'all. Um, <laughs> And uh, that is a word. There aren't many American words that I think should go all around the planet, but yeah. that is one of them. I think it's just phenomenal. Yeah, How y'all doing? Yeah, it's very efficient <laughs> word. I, I mean, I, I married, I, I'm from Montreal, Canada, and I married a Texan. And like when I moved to Texas, everybody was using y'all. And I, I was starting to use it within months and people were like, I, I can't believe you're using y'all. <laughs> It is so good. Yeah. It's so useful and it's so easy. It's yeah. so easy. But there's, um, it, there's so many words that took a while for me to get used to yeah. in America. I remember going in very early on to a, to a store and uh, asking 
if they had any jumpers because it was cold and they looked at me as if I was stupid. And I said, oh, yes, of course, it's a sweater. Um, and then she asked me if I wanted to try pants with the sweater. And um, that's when I thought she was being really forward because obviously pants in England is underwear um, <laughs> and, and not the pants. They, they do say that, what is it? We, we are a, a common language divided by something or other. Oh, I can't remember the quote, but it's, it is amazing. The very first talkie movies in England mm that came from America yeah. had to have subtitles because the English people had no idea what these yeah. Americans were saying. That's hilarious. Yeah. Isn't so, that nuts? Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's some stuff that I watch even that's based in the States that, that I have trouble understanding the accents. So it's like, we've just have so there's so many accents here. You guys have a lot of accents there too. Um, like when I watched originally watched the, the UK office, like that was hard for me to, to listen to because there's so much overlap and it's like kind of its own thing. But uh, being from Canada, we have a lot of, of the similar expressions that you have in the UK. So <laughs> it's a little bit easier. Now, to understand. You uh, uh, now I may be completely off here. Yeah. You weren't born in Canada though, were you? No. You were born in the land of the car. Yeah, I was born in Detroit. Yeah, <laughs> but I was there now, for like city going years. through a resurgence, isn't it? Oh, well, yeah. it would be interesting to see what happens now. Yeah, although I was there a few years ago, and it's like to me, it kind of reminds me of like almost like one of those like fake Western towns. It's like being propped up on uh, on stilts or whatever they call them, <laughs> because you like you walk through the downtown and it's all new and hip and nice. And you go two blocks over and it's just like these bombed out buildings, <laughs> these buildings. It looks like something from a, you know, a, a, a Romero a zombie movie or something. <laughs> well, I think that's one of the problems with a lot of the development of, of towns and cities outside of the major metropolis is yeah. when you have something like Detroit, where it's the, the big money is coming through ad agencies and the car companies where people are being flown in to live there for a brief period of time. Cause they say, this is a career step for me. So I'm going to go and live there for a while. Yeah. And you see this little bubble of a lot of money, but it's not, it's not actually as much seeping out into the local community. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm feeling going into some of the ad agencies there this sense of as you walk in and you see the guards and you see the janitor staff, the you could still feel this sense of struggle and uh, rejection and um, just troubled life. But as soon as you get into the elevator and it opens on another level, that energy changed. Yeah. It's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's like but, that uh, somewhere but, you know, in L.A. Sometimes, sometimes, too. It feels that way here. <laughs> I think LA is an interesting is 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 the is an opposite of that in that there's so much wealth. Yeah. And yet I remember when when I moved to Oklahoma City and the story of moving to Oklahoma City was we toured the US for two years looking for a place to move to. Yeah. And um the deal was my wife and my two kids and myself, all four of us had to agree on a place. So we went to Austin, we went to all the normal places. <laughs> and there was always one of us that said, oh, I don't know about this. Yeah. Um, but we landed in Oklahoma City pretty much by accident, um, coming to ride some horses for three days to pretend to be cowboys and cowgirls. <laughs> and within three days within within twenty-four hours, uh, the four of us had looked at each other and said, Oh my goodness, is this it? this is it. And we moved out here three months later. Wow. But when I told people in LA, you know, I've got friends who live in the Palisades in those big swanky four or $5 million homes. Yeah. And they were also, okay, how much have you, how much have you bought your house for? And I tell them how much we bought our house for, and it's five bedrooms and it's got a big yard and it's tree lined streets everywhere. And the fact that for the 
four of us to go to the movies uh, on a Friday night uh, costs about 18 bucks, wow. although obviously not at the moment. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that, that those people who even I thought were financially incredibly stable would say, I'm on an interest only mortgage. I'm scared to death of the interest rate going up. I, I, I would love to be in your position to be able to move to a place that was more economical. And I, I think there's, there's an air when you, when you come to a place like Oklahoma or, or you know, perhaps Detroit, um, and you know that the school teachers, even if they have very low income and very low pay, can afford to buy a house in their early 20s and know that by their mid-50s, that house is completely paid off. Yeah. Is completely different from an environment in Los Angeles where there's no teacher who's really affording a house today to go and buy, let alone many of the middle class can't get in on those million dollar homes that are still a thousand square foot, haven't been done anything since the 1950s and no dishwasher. Um, And I think that plays on the psyche and the environment of the place. And part of it's good, right? Because it's this drive to do better and to do bigger. But I think even those people that you look at and they're doing millions of dollars of value and income, they're in a situation where they're still shitting bricks, if I can say that, (laughs) uh, that it's all going to fall down. Yeah. And it's, I, I, I know so many people that have, that have, that have businesses or have production companies and that have done the similar thing to you where they've just, they've gone to Austin or Dallas or, uh, you know, to even like Seattle or anywhere other than LA to move their business because it's like, it's a friendlier environment to be able to have some, you know, like you said, have some sense of normal life, but also still produce entertainment and art, which is, it brings us to, I guess we could talk about your, your article, which, uh, I'll, I'll, the title was called, uh, prepare for death and rebirth of Hollywood. Um, that's, that's what a, a title, huh? Yeah, what it's great. Title. It's such clear interest. <laughs> no, but um, but yeah, do like that's the thing is does the movie industry or the the entertainment industry really need to be in LA anymore? Uh, yeah, look, if you if you look at why was it in LA? No. It was in LA to begin with because of the sunshine and the availability of very 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 cheap land. Yeah. Um, uh, the Need for sunshine has changed, uh, which is why we're shooting all over the world. Uh, it is definitely not cheap land anymore. Yeah. And then the reason why it stayed in, in Hollywood is because that's where the power base was, right? That's where the agents were. And with their big, fantastic Darth Vader-like buildings and, <laughs> um, and their, their, their massive expense accounts and the fantastic restaurants, um, it's where the money was coming out of the networks and the studios. But if we look at just just look at the numbers that are happening now with the amount of people that are cutting their cable subscription yeah. in the last in the last three months, those numbers have gone berserk. Oh, yeah. But what has gone berserk as well is streaming. Um, and if we look at Netflix, where's Netflix based? It's Northern California. If we look at where Amazon's based, Amazon's up in Seattle. Um, it is Seattle, isn't it, for Amazon? I think so. I might, uh, yeah, yeah, I think, I think so. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah. Suddenly, suddenly blanking. Um, <laughs> If we look at if, if we look at a lot of the the people who are really making the big shifts within our entertainment industry, um, and on a on a technology level, the gaming industry is going to make a massive massive impact on us in the next eighteen months. Yeah. Uh, then you start to look at North Carolina for uh, Epic Games. You start to look at Vancouver for EA Games. The power base is being sucked out of Hollywood. Yeah, and so you have 
a central talent base is there, but it's extremely expensive to make product. And so when you look at what Atlanta has been able to do over the last initially 12 years has been phenomenal. And I think you're going to see more and more of that pop up into these regional bases, especially when we look at, you know, film and TV production have a massive problem at the moment in that they can't get insured. So when you make a film and TV show, you're spending, you know, perhaps a hundred thousand dollars a day. Well, what happens when someone gets sick? Yeah. What happens when COVID spreads through that small group or we're all nice and close together and you get locked down and now the insurance companies aren't covering it. There's, there's one product that's about to come out uh, that should be covering actors on set. And I imagine everyone will just sign up for this, but it's going to be expensive, right? Yeah. So you're in a better position when you can move that project out to an environment where all of your cast and crew can isolate in a nice way in a nice hotel with still space. And you can go and shoot in an environment where you can close down streets and you still won't have a load of people all around you. And that's going to mitigate that risk. And the more that studios can mitigate that risk, the more that they will do. So they will be shooting more and more outside of, outside of Hollywood and Los Angeles. Yeah. And it, it, it's true though. Like people don't forget, don't know, think about the just the shooting location idea too like if you want to shoot on location you want to go into a a pub or something and like it doesn't matter how small your production is it's so expensive (laughs) to do in california anywhere like i was working on a on a short uh back in december and just to go in and get like to get an hour shooting in a convenience store it was like ridiculous and (laughs) In Austin, I could literally just go to, you know, the little corner store and say, hey, can we come in, you know, at the least busy hour and can we shoot a couple of things and I will, you know, we'll give you a hundred bucks or whatever. That's what it's like, like in other cities in L.A. It's just like, nope, everyone's got their hand well, out. <laughs> you know, you know, what's funny is like when I first came out to Los Angeles, I remember I had to sit down with a big producer and, you know, I was looking for some advice and I asked him his advice, you know as a young filmmaker, what should I do? And I was surprised because he, he came out with, I would leave Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> and this is 10 years ago. I mean, this was like 20, 2010. He, he was like, he, he said around here, there's so much competition and there's so it's all centralized. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, everything's here. You're, you're going to get stifled. And, you know, the, and I think he knew about gatekeepers and all that stuff, but uh, you know, he was making the point of like, go to a place where you can actually build something and you can actually kind of, um, I don't know, like have the freedom to, to create. And, uh, it's something I've thought about a lot over the course of the last 10 years, you know, every once in a while, I think about leaving Los Angeles. I think about striking out somewhere else. And, uh, now, I mean, you know, having read your article, Richard, it's, it's, it is really, really interesting to, you know, with the demand for content, especially coming up given this crisis that we're in. And, and on top of that, even before that, I was looking at streaming services and I was thinking, these guys really seem to want to fill up their libraries. Like where, you know, how can I get in on this? You know, so maybe you can speak into the future of, of that, how that's going to play into uh, opportunities for entertainment in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we're in a, we're in a, we're in a golden age. We really are. And it's ridiculously exciting because we're in a situation where Netflix, the king, really was in a situation where the Netflix brand was, you want to stream something? Come to us. 
Right yeah. now, that's a first mover advantage because they were able to go and get all these streaming rights. And then the Writers Guild and everyone else was able to say, hang on, we haven't got these in our contract, which is why it's so cheap to Netflix. And but by that time, Netflix had this massive library. Yeah. So we've all been conditioned to if we pay our 13 bucks, we want to be able to sit there for 20 minutes scrolling through different shows. Going, Do we want to watch that? Oh, maybe. No. Oh, that's the next one. That's yeah. the next one. <laughs> And then by which time you look at the clock and you go, you know what, perhaps I'll watch this tomorrow instead. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then you're in a situation where, as always happens, the incumbents are struggling to catch up. And the one that's done it really, really well is actually Disney. And if you look at the numbers over the last three months of who has got the most subscriber game is, is, is Disney Plus. They've wow. done phenomenally well. Now, the Disney Plus library is really small. Yeah. But it doesn't matter yeah. because... If you've ever seen a child watch Frozen, yeah. I can guarantee you they're watching it for the hundredth time. My yeah. niece. There you go, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so there aren't many shows that someone will watch over and over and over again. So if you look at it from a parent standpoint, I'm paying 10 bucks a month. It's cheaper than that for Disney Plus as a babysitter for my kids. <laughs> and they will watch those shows over and over again. It's brilliant. So they don't have to go into crazy, crazy uh, depth of library. But... Uh, you know, HBO has their, HBO Max has their streaming service coming out. We're going to have right. one from Viacom coming out. We've got Hulu. Um, we've got um, uh, uh, NBC. We've got CBS. They're all coming out with their streaming services. We are not going to be as forgiving because we don't watch the same movie over and over and over again the same way that kids do. Yeah. So we're in a situation where you've got someone like CBS who, and I don't know the exact numbers, so I'm using this as an example. Let's say they make... Uh, 45 new shows a year and the rest are reruns on their programming and what have you. They're having to go to 80 new shows a year plus other support stuff that they're going to try and buy. But where do they buy it from? Netflix just went to all the other broadcasters and bought their stuff. Yeah. But so they're going to have to go to the indie world to buy content to be that filler content. And that's not just them. That is every, that's Showtime who are going to have streaming. That's every single streamer is going to have to increase the volume of what they can commit. They can commission by a, a huge amount, which puts a massive strain on our industry because we have enough crew that's working to support the current industry. Suddenly, if we're doubling the amount of productions going to be made, we have a problem with uh, sound stages. We have a problem with crew. Right. Yeah. We have a problem with story because at the moment our old system is built that you have uh, studio execs and uh, development departments who I wrote a superhero movie for Walt Disney years ago. And the it, the notes and the process over the year for changes was just it. it tore my hair out, which is one of the reasons <laughs> why I said I don't want to be in this model in that way. Yeah. But what was amazing to me was when you start looking at the amount of demand that we're seeing for content, these networks are not going to be able to develop the same way again. So that the power is going to shift into the producer, where the producer is going to be trusted to develop that content and deliver with a bow on it. And that's a game changer for our entire industry, because not since really the 70s and then the early 90s for TV has producers have power. Producers are always I'm going to employ you. You're going to know, you're going to own no IP for the last 20 years, um, and uh, and you're just essentially a work for hire. That's yeah. changed. And so, in terms of back to your your comment about you know making content, I think the best filmmakers are filmmakers who get to practice, yeah. just like the best actors. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why I have a problem with SAG and the 
minimum budget, minimum payments that you have to make to an actor on a low, low budget movie, even if the actor is putting it together themselves with their union, is just crazy. Same yeah. as small theater fee payments, because actors get better as they act more. Mm-hmm. It's it, we know that with anything that we do. So the more that you can be out shooting a film as a filmmaker, the better. And it's very difficult to do that within Los Angeles to a certain extent. The other side of it is it's very easy because there's so many people wanting to shoot stuff. Yeah. But then your actors can sometimes get a bit problematic because of the union hears and should I be doing this? And if it's successful and then the agent gets involved and you're sort of, Oh my goodness, why did I even start this? Yeah. Um, so I think, I think the more that, when we can get out of those major metropolises and start making content and start being known within that community and building our own brand as a filmmaker, that's what becomes very exciting to the networks. Because if you can show a body of work where you constantly deliver, then you're in a position to meet this massive, massive content demand that is here now and is going to be here for the foreseeable future. But without that body of work, it's very difficult for them to take that that jump on you right now. Because you have, they, they just can't see that you're going to constantly deliver. Yeah. That's, that's one thing that I feel like in this new media world, especially as you look to things like YouTube or even just people on social media, how much content that they have to put out on a weekly basis. That wasn't the case. Like even when I was in film school, like I'd, I'd freak out if I had one you know, film project to turn in a month. And then you've got people on YouTube that are doing basically like entire doc, like short documentaries, like every other day or something. It's insane. Well, and that's, that's part of this big shift, right? Um, Because we're shifting away from, uh, the, the, the ego in a way says I need to have my, um, my slate with my name on it and I need to have the nice dolly and I need to have all this great stuff to show that I'm a legitimate filmmaker. Well, that's all, that's all BS because I'll give you a great example. Um, Will Smith, uh, a couple of years ago, bought a feature film that was shot for no money. It was a thriller set at LAX airport. And these two guys decided, you know what? We're going to make this thriller. We love it. No one's buying it. So we are going to shoot the whole thing on our iPhone. Oh, wow. And so they would go around LAX. Now, Matt, you know, we all know what LAX is like. It's one yeah. of the worst <laughs> airports. And yeah. the cost to shut that down and shoot a movie would be ridiculous. Yeah. But what they did was they walked around with an iPhone uh, with one actor or two actors shooting the whole thing. If they needed to get airside or be on an airplane, then they simply bought the cheapest flight they could to San Jose or to San Francisco. They'd get on the airside, shoot the stuff they needed for the day, and then come back the other side. But no one ever questioned it because they were on an iPhone. Wow. And guess what happened? They shot it. It got into a film festival. People went nuts over it. Will Smith heard it, said to Universal, buy this, and they can direct now the feature of what I'm doing. Wow. That's crazy. There's a lot of cool stories stories like like that. that. It is cool how how even the tools of filmmaking have been so democratized now to where if you know how to use a camera, you could shoot something great on your phone. I mean – that's 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 the reality of it is that you know you don't need this big of course you know tech people are going to get get upset but you don't need you know the latest whatever panavision model <laughs> the with all the lenses and stuff if you could tell a great story and you you know you know how to operate a camera you can get something you know done for cheap <laughs> yeah and look if you're a filmmaker yeah 
then you have to be a storyteller first, not the technology. Yeah. Uh, now, the person who wants to be the cameraman, yeah, you can. I've got a friend of mine who uh, got was a, started to be a professional photographer, and how he got really known was through his iPhone photographs. And he had a whole gallery, art gallery in LA that was all iPhone photographs. Wow. And now he's earning big money shooting for big brands, and sometimes he still uses an iPhone. But it's not about, you know, Oh, Danny Boyle with um, what's the zombie movie set in London? Oh, uh, 28 oh, yeah. Days Later. Yeah. 28 Days Later. It was yeah. shot on a Canon X1. Yeah, yeah I remember yeah. that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's not about the tools. If you're, a, if you're a filmmaker, if you're a storyteller, get out and tell your stories. Just yeah. like you guys are proactive with this podcast, right? You're yeah. out there, you're telling stories, and you're building your brand. You can only build your brand, and your brand actually is then your equity to be able to move on to other things if you're out in the world doing stuff. Yeah. But if you're sitting there talking about it and writing scripts and no one ever sees it, yeah. then you are doing nothing. And unfortunately, that's an awful lot of people around the world who want to get into entertainment or into any um, competitive landscape, they're not putting themselves out there enough and taking risks. Yeah. Do you think that with this whole pandemic that there are people that are laying kind of in hiding and then when this stuff gets lifted, there's just going to be this whole <laughs> this whole boom of, of all the stuff people were making in hiding? Or do you think a lot of people are just still sitting on their ass and eating Cheez-Its? <laughs> I think there's a lot of people still sitting on the grass eating cheese. Uh, I don't think I've ever had a cheese in my life. Um, Whoa. Maybe <laughs> keep like it that way. Something. That's, a, that's yeah. a good. That's a good thing to, to put that on your gravestone. Yeah. Um, so, so look. Here's here's what's happening at the moment. Is there are an awful lot of producers who were getting ready with their products, projects, and developing them. Yeah. They've stopped developing, and yeah. the reason why they've stopped developing is because. Um, all of the traditional buyers are so desperate to buy content to feed the machine because the machine is running out of content that those producers have actually started phoning around to filmmakers who have films that have just been completed, but they have no way of getting it out to a market or films that went out to the market but never sold and now have the opportunity to being sold for good money. So a lot of those producers who were traditionally developing are out actually scouring for projects that they can sell immediately and they can make a couple of hundred grand straight away or a hundred grand. Um, I think there are a number of people out there. I know one guy at the moment who's shooting a film. He wrote it in a week. It's, uh, it's all set in his apartment. He lives with three other people. They're shooting it there. And then all the other characters are via Skype. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of that. Uh, I think there's going to be a few that will rise to the top and be really good and will make some people. And there's going to be a lot of them that will just fall to the wayside. And I hope that none of those filmmakers feel dejected by the fact that it didn't go anywhere because essentially you've been set a very, very, uh, a narrow lane of which to make your movie at the moment. <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. And so your competition is going to be massive, but by the same score, um, when you start to look at film festivals, um, Film festivals are in a problem in that they're going to have a lack of content next year. Mm -hmm. So if you are doing a film and you can get it ready by, uh, when are we looking at? Uh, September, uh, probably end of September is the deadline for Sundance. Now is your best time to apply to Sundance ever because the amount of applications are going to be a lot lower, a lot lower. Oh, that's a good Um, tip. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So make as much as you can, right? Exactly. Um, 
And then I think there are those brave filmmakers like here in Oklahoma, we're open now. We're open for business. So there's a film yeah. that just started shooting next uh, this week. Um, you can say, you know what? I'm going to go to Austin where I've got family. Yeah. And I'm going to jump in a car. We're going to drive out there with four buddies and uh, we're going to rent an Airbnb and we're going to shoot in the city of, I mean, because Texas, I think, is completely open now. Yeah. Um, we're going to shoot something there. And we're just, you know, because otherwise we're going to be sitting at home anyway here in LA. Yeah. So I think yeah. there's this massive, massive opportunity for people to be going out and creating content. And that content has a better chance to be purchased than ever before. Wow. That's so cool. Wow. So exciting. <laughs> I've always been like a, like just always been a fan of independent filmmaking and people doing their, doing stuff on their own outside of the system. But it, it's cool to see that that that's going to be prevalent now more prevalent than it has been even in, in recent years um i don't know i just love i love <laughs> i love seeing i love seeing the man get it you know whenever people in power don't have it anymore it's it's a good feeling <laughs> well look i think that one of the big changes we're going to see and i talk about it in the article is is exhibition and um yeah. we're going to see all the movie theaters go bust over the next three to yeah. six months yeah. i think um amc have got another six weeks left of, of money in the bank and really? they are they have so much debt so much debt yeah um that unless a very big chinese backer comes in and buys them um just to hold on to it. And what you got to remember also is that AMC don't own most of their properties. Yeah. So they're at, you know, $2.5 million. Don't quote me on that, but it's something ridiculous per month that they're paying in lease costs. Wow. Um, so what we're going to see is we're going to see places like uh, Netflix and Amazon come in and purchase them. There was just the rumor that I think it was Amazon was going to purchase AMC. Uh, came out on Monday, which was a week after my article, which I had a nice smile on my face about. <laughs> uh, You're a prophet. But I like that. Um, <laughs> and, and so if, if, when we see that happen, when we see that consolidation, uh, there are a lot of people who are in fear of that because suddenly you've got these major corporations like Disney coming in and buying Cineplex. Um, but what they're going to bring is programmatic uh, scheduling of movies yeah. so that it's going to give the option for independent filmmakers to go and four wall, which means that you pay to be in that movie theater through an automated process. Um, and what it's going to the impact of that is that filmmakers have to stop thinking about I'm going to spend all my time making this film and then I'm going to try and sell it to someone yeah. and that's it. Filmmakers have to change from going, oh, that if I was in any other business and you said, I'm going to go and I'm going to learn, I'm going to make this amazing stapler. It's going to be the best stapler in the world. And then yeah. once I've made it, I'm just going to throw it out to a few places and see if they will do everything else for me. Yeah. That doesn't happen. You have to put together your marketing strategy, how you're getting to your audience, who are you partnering with, um, and then you are controlling how this makes money for the next 10 years. And so many filmmakers forget that and actually yeah. – Getting the film out there to the audience is 80% of your job. Yeah. 20% is making the movie. Yeah. I, I mean, I have, I, I remember <laughs> having friends that were working on films and they didn't even think about what their festival fees like we're going <laughs> to, we're going to be, let alone what their, what their distribution model is going to be. <laughs> well, isn't that kind of the, the irony of like being an, I mean, a lot of artists, if you look at even throughout history, it's like, you know, it's, it's, you know, some people are just very, very creative, but they don't really have an eye for business as much. And that's where, you know, I was impressed in your article. You really dove into kind of the the intricacies of of where the business is going to be going in terms of like finding some of these, like you were saying, like producers 
who are kind of old school producers and that they really know the business. And I, I think you look at like some of the some of the best directors or at least some of the best postmodern directors who revolutionized the industry. They all had really good producers they were attached to. Yeah. And sometimes when those producers left, they didn't really quite do as well as they did when they were in their heyday. And it, it's it's just interesting. It's it's interesting to see how uh, how sometimes the artist it just business doesn't necessarily come inherent with the art. Having said that, if you look at some of the biggest um, artists mm-hmm. out there, they're phenomenal business people. So Steven yep. Spielberg is yeah. a phenomenal business person. Now, not only does he have a great team around him, but he's a, a, been able to build his business, um, put together DreamWorks, which was the biggest startup funded business in the world. Um, he's been able to retain rights to things. If you look at, let's let's dial this all the way back to a, a young animator who did a little sketch drawing of a mouse that was on his desk, mm-hmm. Walt Disney. Walt Disney was the ultimate artist. He's a pen and paper artist. And yet he able, was able to think about how do I retain the rights to this? How do I get to an audience? What is the deals that I do? James Cameron, again, a great, great businessman. Yeah. So if we start looking at our heroes, they are business people as well. They yeah. understand the game that has to be played. They understand their brand equity and what they're doing around that. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people go, yeah, but that's not the fun part. Ah, but if you get creative with it, yeah. it can be really fun because you understand that every move you make on that chessboard actually gets you that much closer to the freedom of you being able to do what you do. Tyler Perry, right? Yeah. Tyler mm-hmm. Perry is a phenomenal businessman. You look, he's just opened that massive studio in Atlanta. He started, one of the reasons why Tyler Perry is so good, he started by making these very, very, very low budget projects and yeah. then going round all the barber shops trying to sell it to people. Wow. <laughs> How many filmmakers do you know that go and make something themselves and then will go out peddling the streets to try and sell one DVD at a time? Although we wouldn't do it with DVDs now, but one <laughs> DVD at a time. QR code. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. We just don't do it because yeah. we look at it and go, oh, it's not worth my time. I did, mm. That's not really what I love to do. And it's Yeah. Fear of rejection. Just like being a parent, I've got two kids. There's some stuff, there's a lot of stuff that I love about being a parent. But I don't then go, all this other stuff is a bit too difficult and I don't enjoy it. So I'm just going to leave that stuff and the kids can friend for themselves. You got to take both of it together. And Mm -hmm. that's where the filmmaker has to really step up now. And if the the filmmakers that do step up, well, they're going to be leading the charge in the next 18 months. Yeah. The filmmakers that don't, that are just resting on, oh, I just want to sell the script and I want someone to finance my movie. Yeah, they're going to be still saying that in 18 months. And in 20 years, they're still going to be sitting there going, yeah, you know, I, I had it. I was so close, but it wasn't my fault. It was the agents or it was the industry. Yeah. They never recognized how great this was. <laughs> we all know it doesn't matter how great your script is because the amount of turds that are made and put onto the market every month. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So many. Yeah. <laughs> ah, it's dreadful. <laughs> if you're a businessman, if you can think about this in terms of a stapler and taking a stapler to market, then that is a game changer and you separate yourself from everyone else in the market. Wow, that's great advice. And what, yes. what you said about being creative with that, that the business process I think some uh, people that have done that really well is, is the Duplass brothers, like Mark and Jay Duplass. I don't mm. know if you follow any of their stuff, but they've 
they they started out making these little indie movies, but they've always had creative ways of distributing it. And we're kind of early in, even on doing the iPhone thing and doing the just an online release and all that stuff, where it's like they their book just had a lot of you know covers all of that stuff. But it's really cool to see what they've been able to do as like indie filmmakers and just outside of the Hollywood system to make their stuff. And they're in Texas, right? Aren't they in Austin? I think they're in LA now. They used to be Austin. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they got drawn like a moth <laughs> with a bite. But then one of their whole chapters in their book is like, don't move to LA. You don't need to be here. But their whole family and everything is like established here. And so I guess they, they stay. But <laughs> Well, that's it. You can do so much. A friend mm. of mine shot a, a, a short film here in Oklahoma. He's um, Lance McDaniel. And I, I may butcher the story of Lance's listening to this, so my apologies. <laughs> Um, but he's he's the head of the Dead Center Film Festival, which is about to go online next month. And it's going to be one of the first film festivals that actually utilizes drive-in movie theaters. Oh, that's so show. awesome! Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Uh, so uh, um, he was shooting a he was shooting a short film, and he's in this sort of uh, town outside of the city here. And the fire brigade are just down the road, and they come out to see what he's doing. And they're saying, "Hey, I, I one of the guys says I watch all these DVD extras, and I see that they wet down the streets." Do you want me to bring the fire engine out and we'll open up the fire hydrant and we'll wet down all the streets to make it look like that? Wow. He was sort of, that sounds great. Thank you very much. <laughs> so cool. So the car drives around the corner in this shot. It's glistening. It's looking beautiful. You'd have spent thousands of dollars in LA for it. Yeah. And um, drives up a bit timidly. This car gets out and the woman runs into the house. And Lance says, so, okay, let's do it again. Can you drive a little bit more aggressively? Well, the actress didn't really have the confidence to drive aggressively. And the police were there. And one of the police ladies came up and said, hey, look, I look a bit like her. Do you want me to hop in the car and I'll spin it around the corner? And then, you know, you can just get her getting out of the car. And he said, that's great. So suddenly he's got, you know, Oklahoma police officer driving the car around the corner, skidding it around the corner, coming up to a fast stop. The streets are wet down. This is Hollywood. And he's not paying a single penny for it because everyone's just excited for it to be here. Whereas I shot something in LA and I kid you not, this happened. We were shooting. Suddenly someone came out with a leaf blower. (laughs) All on the front. So you sort of, okay, PA, hundred bucks. Go and tell them to stop it. Okay. All right. Okay. It's 150 bucks. Okay. So they go inside five minutes later, the next door neighbor is out blowing their leaves. Oh no. But they're blowing it with the same leaf blower. (laughs) They'd gone down to the back and passed it over the fence and it just went down the street. 150 bucks, 150 bucks, 150 bucks. Everyone knows that you can make money. And if there's a film shooting here, it's going to be a pain in the ass because we're so used to it and we're so blah, whatever. Yeah. Whereas you go outside of those markets and people will turn up. Um, we had a religious movie here. It did ridiculously well shoot here. Um, I can only imagine. Oh, so yeah, I remember, I remember that remember one. Biggest that. ice storm of the year happens the night before they have asked all these extras to turn up for this big crowd scene, like 2,000 extras they needed. And they weren't paying them, right? Wow. Please come down and support us on all the Christian radios. And um, biggest ice storm. And the producers sort of, oh, if we get five people, I'm going to be... I'm going to be shocked. (laughs) They get down there and people have traveled from Texas. They've traveled from all over the place to be in this movie for free. And they have well over 2000 people turning up there and they have, they've gone through treacherous weather to get there and show up because this is their chance to be in a movie. Wow. (laughs) So, yeah. So look, I think, I think we're going to see to loop that back with what you were asking earlier. 
I think we're going to see more and more productions moving outside of LA for insurance reasons, for creative reasons, for control, um, because of, I think a lot of a lot of people that I know, we've got staff in LA with our, our advertising agency, Fanology, and I look at that and I, I'm on Skype with them and they're in small apartments and the heat is coming up and they don't have air conditioning in their apartments and they're hearing now they're going to have to be stuck for another six weeks when actually all those people could be buying five-bedroom homes in yeah. a lot of the rest of the country. And we've just proven, we just got rid of our office in LA yeah. because we've just proven that actually everyone can work absolutely fine remotely. Yeah. Um, That's a huge thing, I think. That's a huge overhead that is going to be lifted for a lot of people, not just the entertainment industry, but just in general in the world now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, yeah. And I think, I think what you're talking about, it's interesting because it's something that, you know, I've been thinking about a lot lately and it's this idea of like, you know, living in the big city, living in uh, like an epicenter, like LA or New York city or something like that. It's, it's comforting because there's always a lot going on, you know, it's kind of a Shangri-La. I've always thought of it that way. And that you don't really quite feel how time passes because there's a lot going on and it's just the way it is. I mean, it's just like, because there is a lot going on, but, um, but it feels like a sacrifice to leave that, you know, cause it is like a blast to the ego. Like you're like, ah, oh, well I was in LA and like everything's there. All these famous people I see on the street and everything, but then you don't realize that it's, it's so much more of an investment, like, you know, striking out on, on your own, wherever you're going, you know, even if it's just somewhere else in California, striking out on your own and doing what Charlie Chaplin did, doing what Buster Keaton did, like back in the old days of like, like LA was that for them, you know, yes. and you would have wanted to be there. So it's like, why don't you go out to Oklahoma city, you know, like, uh, like you did Oklahoma city and, uh, and make something, you know, it's, it's, it's cool. I like so it. Let me give you an example on that. Right. Because you're, you're so right that the, often the ego gets in the way and you feel that if I leave LA, all my friends back home are going to look at it and go, Oh, he tried. He tried. <laughs> so what do you do now? You can start a career. Do you need us to find you a job? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that can be crushing to the soul, right? Crushing oh. to the soul. But the key is, is, is to come out and find a place where you can live, where you can tap into the film community and there are film communities all over America where you can start making content and, and you will be happier because of it. One of the things I didn't expect there to be such a big film community here in Oklahoma city. And I commute between LA. So I'm in LA every month or I was until we got locked down. Mm. Um, so I get my my little fill and it's a two and a half hour flight. The flights are 180 bucks. Yep. I can get in there. I leave here at 6am. I'm in my breakfast spot down in Venice beach by 8am in the morning, LA time. Right. And I can see everyone and do everything I need and then get back here. But one of the things that we found was that suddenly we were in this opportunity where we could buy a 50,000 square foot building with 12 acres of land, an option on another 66 acres and this this building was a school that was closed down. It has a gymnasium that is a you'll laugh at this because we're in Oklahoma, a tornado shelter. FEMA rated <laughs> tornado shelter. Oh, yeah. So it's got one foot concrete walls and a one foot concrete ceiling, which costs nice. four million dollars to build or three three something to build, which is perfect for a soundstage. So we bought this building. And we're turning it into a facility that will be the Oklahoma Film and TV Academy, where I've got people like the gaffer from uh, Moulin Rouge, who's going to teach there. I've got the um, 
I've got the uh, one of the people from the AD department of the Mandalorian is going to be a teacher there where these people are moving out of the city as well and saying, hey, yeah. I'll just travel for work. Um, but we're in a situation where I'm going to have quarter of a million dollars worth of grip and electric gear. I'll have 15 cameras. I'll have three sound stages. I will have a full post-production suite. All for what will essentially be less, if I look at the actual out, the, 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 the payments that I'm putting out, less than it would have cost me to buy the 1,200 square foot home in Venice Beach that I was renting. Wow. And so I will be in a position where I will be able to crank content out yeah. and take bets on people saying, you've got a great idea, let's do this together and build that brand around that so yeah. that we can understand that audience because I'm working outside of the system. And that is doable, not only in Oklahoma, you can do that almost anywhere where there's a low cost of living. And wow. that's what's exciting. And that is Sorry. the same, not only for film and television, that's the same for any industry. And what we see when we have times of these pandemics and massive upheaval, we saw it in the last writer's strike, massive changes going on within streaming and everything. This is even bigger. We haven't had anything like this for a hundred years. This is accelerating the death of companies that were slowly dying. And it's going to accelerate the opportunities for people who've got ideas who want to make big moves to really, really do something special. But we've got a window of 18 months to two years for you to be the first mover adopter. If you, if you think about it, those people who got on Instagram early on and started posting lots of great content and now have millions and millions of followers and make tens of thousands of dollars a post, right? They were, they're in that position because they were in the first mover advantage. Yeah. Today, right now, anyone who's listening to this know that you are at the cusp of a first mover advantage for any industry you're interested in whatsoever, but you've got to take action. So just be brave and, and, and make that move. That's that's great advice. I think awesome. that's a good place to to close out. And yeah, <laughs> I think I know what the soundbite will be for uh, for the episode. I'm about to run out of my room right yeah. now and start you know <laughs> inno start you innovating. That's awesome, man. Um, if people want to find your stuff, uh, where can they go, Richard? You know, the best place to see. Um, more about what I'm up to and, and uh, the different companies I'm involved in is just simply to go to www.richardjanes.com and that's J-A-N for November E-S, richardjanes.com and that'll show you the advertising agency, that'll show you the film studio, the film academy uh, and a couple of other fun things that I'm involved in. That's awesome, and we'll have to have you back on. There's so many things that we yeah, could yeah. talk about that yeah. we can't fit into an hour show. But uh, well, listen, have me back on. Yeah. Uh, when you guys have shot your next, your fifth next project yeah. since today, because you're cranking stuff out. Exactly. Exactly. That's what we'll do. I, you got to hold us to it. Then that's what we're gonna. Love that's a reckoning. We'll I love back. it. <laughs> cool. Thanks again, Richard. We'll, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be back. Hello, gentlemen, Scofflaws. Thanks so much for being a loyal listener of the show. And your feedback and support is really what keeps us going and means a lot to us. So sincerely, thank you again. Now, if you're a fan of the show and you want to take your support to the next level, why not support the show on Patreon? We offer all sorts of extras on there like outtakes, extended interviews, a bonus movie podcast, and behind-the-scenes content. Better yet, we have options that start as little as a dollar a month. You pay more for that at a 
parking meter to go in and grab a cup of coffee at Starbucks. See what I did there? If you're interested in helping support the show, please check out patreon.com slash gentscofflaw or click the support link on the website. Again, that's patreon.com slash gentscofflaw. We look forward to having you as part of our team. All right. Uh, great guest. Yeah, um, dude. Got to have him back on. There's so much we could unpack with him. Um, but uh, go ahead again and check out his work. Uh, you won't regret it. Also, a um, little kind of uh, uh, sort of on topic, what we were talking about this week, uh, Joe Rogan signed that deal with Spotify. Was it a $100 million deal to be exclusive with Spotify? Yeah, um, dude. That's kind of a cool and, uh, story and for podcasters and content according creators. According to the... According to the YouTube economics I saw that from that video you sent me, it sounds like Spotify Spotify has made like five billion dollars off the deal. Yeah, like I was going to say five billion bucks. That doesn't sound right, <laughs> doesn't does sound it? Right, no. Um, but uh, we're getting to that age yeah. where you can't even say bucks anymore when it comes to <laughs> you can't money. Even say bucks. But uh, but yeah, dude, it's crazy. It's like I. I, yeah, it's huge. I'm going to be really interested. I mean, I've never been happier to be a Spotify member, Yeah, you know, to have a subscription, which obviously doesn't really endorsed by Spotify, but go ahead. Sign up, whatever. (laughs) But like, but, uh, it's funny because I remember being really frustrated that you couldn't get Rogan's podcast on Spotify. Yeah. Well, it's cool because it seems like they're opening up the video aspect to Spotify for podcasters, which is going to be cool for us and anybody who creates podcasts. Yeah, Um, for sure. Plus I think, feel like Spotify has become like the default music app for a lot of people. And the fact that the podcasts have been moving over there, at least the last couple of years, like it's like, we're on Spotify. Um, But that tends to be kind of like the default way I listen to nowadays. Um, I don't, let us know where you listen to the podcast. Uh, You can listen to us again on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and uh, Stitcher and anywhere else. (laughs) Where are the kids, where are the kids listening to podcasts (laughs) these days? Um, Who let Bill Clinton into the room? Yeah, who let him in? Um, and if you want to engage with us out the week and uh, participate, be part of the show, go ahead and follow us on social media, all the social medias at Gent Scofflaw. Leave us a comment uh, or you could write us a review um, and you, you might get featured on the show. Also, if you want to support the show, you could always go to patreon.com slash Gent Scofflaw and uh, become part of the show basically by, in a small way, you're helping produce it. Um you could also uh, go to our merch shop and get a T-shirt or a flask or a mug or I think that's a all glass. I can think of right now. You got a pint glass. Pint glass. Those yeah. are nice. Those are nice we pint got glasses. Koozies. We beer got koozies. Uh, we got all sorts of good we stuff. We got flippity But flippity floppities as well. The most comfortable footwear you'll ever wear. The summer's coming. Um, Summer is coming. Summer's basically here, man. Yeah. And uh, Father's Day is right around the corner. That's which true. means that, you know, you can get some of that sweet, sweet merch for your for your daddy. Because so- this we are we're living in an age of gentlemen and scoff laws. Exactly. We are. It's- Exactly. Uh, also, if you want to uh, join our giveaway uh, for this month, go to Instagram.com slash Jen and uh, click our giveaway. We're giving away a Garden of Bali aftershave uh, from Phoenix Shaving, um, aftershave and cologne. So uh, it pulls double duty 
and uh, go there and join Donovan. You are a gentleman in the scoffle, my friend. As are you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And you guys have a great week. This has been the Gentleman Scofflaw Podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Visit us on the interwebs at gentlemanscofflaw.com. Captain says, his ass on the river, we ain't getting home if we don't break through. So damn cold, I can't help but shiver. Rise and shine, we got work to do. Hey!